Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have the Bible, that we can listen to it, that we can read it, that these are words that glorify you and they are joy for our souls. Lord, help us to understand chapters 18 and 19 in Genesis, that we would live for you, that everything we do would be transformed in light of what Jesus has done and what you are doing in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Genesis is essentially broken up into two major parts. The first half of Genesis, um, chapters 1 to 11, it speaks of a good God who created a good world, mountains, plants, people. But the people rebelled against their creator. The people rebelled against their God. And generation after generation, the generations would spiral in, in the rebellion these crimes against God, what the Bible calls sin, it would continue to rebel until God raises up this family, um, this family, Noah and his family. You may be familiar, may not be familiar with Noah's Ark. That was a hard reset that humanity had gotten so bad. God said, I'm going to wipe them out. We're going to start again. We're going to start with Noah. But the people continue to rebel generation after generation. Until he meets, until, he, until God creates and raises up this man named Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham. And he says to him, I'm going to essentially reverse this curse. This curse that you've inherited through you, Abraham, through your family, through your descendants. I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to take away the sin and you will be a blessing to the nations. And so from chapters 12 to 50, the second part of Genesis we are being acquainted with Abraham and his family and future generations. So that's where we're at right now in chapters 18 and 19. We're learning about this relationship that Abraham, this man Abraham has with God. And what can we as a people learn from this story? So again, chapters 12 to 50, God makes a promise to bless a rebellious humanity through the family of Abraham. And the story follows this promise through four generations. And through all these accounts, as you read Genesis, we're brought to marvel and to be in wonder of the goodness of God as he's working so graciously to keep this promise despite people rebelling. rebelling. That his gracious purpose to restore the world back to the way it was, back to its goodness, where people walked with God there was no lying, there's no cheating, there's no stealing, there's no murder, there's no cancer. God is restoring all things. And he's bringing this unstoppable goal to a finish as we read throughout the entire Bible, which is one story. One story about God and his relationship with the world and how he's bringing it to himself. And ultimately, we find it in Jesus Christ. So in chapter 18 of Genesis... We're kind of watching the Lord's relationship, God's relationship with Abraham. In verse 1, it opens, The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. So Abraham has settled in this land, and it says, The Lord appeared again to Abraham. And the Lord, so the Bible, this part of the Bible is written in a language called Hebrew. 
And the Lord, the word there is Yahweh, is the formal name for the Lord. It said Yahweh appeared to Abraham again where he had set his tent, where he had settled. And Abraham was there. He was hanging out, chilling during the hottest part of the day. And he looked up. He noticed three men were standing nearby. So three men had showed up. And when he saw them, he ran out. He greeted them, bowing low to the ground. So these weren't just regular people. He, he knew that there was something special about these three men. And Abraham says in verse 3, My Lord. Now, during this time, my Lord. So if you say Lord, it's, it's kind of like a formal acknowledgement of someone of a higher status. So he said, my Lord. But this isn't quite that acknowledgement. In the original language in Hebrew, when Abraham says, my Lord, he's saying Adonai. And Adonai is another formal name for God, just like Yahweh. He says, my Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while, rest in the shade, hang out with me, we'll prepare some food for you, please stay. There's this great hospitality towards these people. But now we know one of them is God himself. God in the flesh. We don't know what he looks like, but he's taken the form of a human. And he's come down with one of these, as one of these three men. Right? Because verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared. And how does Abraham address him? He says, Adonai, please, please stay. And, and they're getting some bread ready. They're baking. His wife, Sarah, is, is preparing stuff for, in the, uh, for the guests in the tent. In verse 9, the visitors ask, where's your wife? Where's, where's Sarah? And Abraham says, she's in the tent. And then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year. And your wife, Sarah, will have a son. What, what's this all about? What is, what, why is this guest saying this? No guest has ever come to my house and just said, hey, having dinner, this is, this is cool. Hey, by the way, next year your wife's going to have a kid. What's going on here? What's happening here is God is reiterating a promise that he made in the previous chapter. He said to Sarah, God said to Sarah in chapter 17, verse 16, he says, and I will bless her and give her a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. So God made this promise to Sarah that you will have a kid. You will have a son next year. So Sarah's in the tent preparing the food and she's, she's overhearing this conversation. She's eavesdropping. It says Sarah was listening to this conversation and Abraham and Sarah were very old at this time. And Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself. Ha ha ha. Something like that. How could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? Especially when my master, my husband is also so old. She's saying, I'm so old. My husband is so old. How can we have children? Verse 13. Then the Lord, Yahweh, in Hebrew, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? 
and this is the key verse in this chapter, is anything too hard for the Lord? Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? The literal translation in its original language, the word hard is wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is Adonai. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it with his breath, with his word. And he sustains everything. We exist. Our blood vessels in our bodies move because God allows it to move. He created the galaxies, the cosmos, everything in it, and he makes them move. He tells where every snowflake lands. He tells Yukon, you're going to be minus 31 today. And we say, no, but God does that. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? No. God continues, verse 14, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. This is a promise. Sarah was afraid and she denied it, denied the accusation. I did not laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did. I don't know if you use that type of incantation. Or not incantation, what's the word I'm looking for? Reflection. Yeah, no, you did. So throughout this passage, we're continuing to marvel at God's insistence of fulfilling his promises. This is called divine grace. That even though Sarah's laughing at God, he says, I'm still going to keep my promise. This is unconditional. I'm going to keep this promise. And against all odds, in spite of Abraham's foolishness and Sarah's laughter, God remains determined to keep his promise. That Abraham will be a blessing to the world through his descendants. Through Sarah, she will be the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. And this is what it means to live by faith. If you're a Christian, you live by faith in God, and this involves confronting our difficult circumstances with the promises of God. So are you in a difficult circumstance? Are you struggling financially? mentally? Are you struggling with friendships, loneliness? Are you struggling with anxiety? Now God's not going to come and just fix all of that. But in the midst of our difficulty, we confront all of these things with God's promises. Promises like, I will be with you. I will be with you when your kids are losing their mind and thus you lose your mind. I will be there when your bank account is empty. I will be there when you are sick. I will be there when your family is sick. I will be there when you are poor. I will be there when your politics and your politicians are lying and cheating. I will be with you. I will keep my promises. And we rest in that. So we don't try to fix the world. We know the one who has the world in his hands. I believe there's a kid song about that. Maybe we can sing it after. So living by faith means confronting our difficult circumstances with God's promises. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And God's grace, His unmerited mercy, and how He treats us in fulfilling His promises is not determined by us and how good we are. 
and if you're keeping with the Northern Collective's 2020 Bible reading plan, and if you've been praying for every community over these next 16 days, know His grace is not determined by our circumstance, our good behavior, or our sin. Because He is God, and He works out His purposes despite us. But He chooses to use us, weak, ordinary people who make mistakes, who forget things, like their anniversary and their wife's birthday. You know, hypothetical things like that. He uses ordinary people like us to fulfill his promises. It's by God's grace, not our merit, that determines the course of his blessings in our lives. We do not deserve anything from God, yet he chooses to show us mercy. We continue in verse 16. Then the men got up from their meal and looked out towards Sodom. So there's this town, Sodom. And so when Abraham and his nephew Lot, and we're going to learn about Lot in a second, they went out, they were leaving this former land, going to a new land, and they had a bunch of cattle and people, and Lot needed land, Abraham needed land. And Abraham said, hey Lot, you can have any piece of land that you want. All of this, <laughs> have you seen Lion King? Wherever the sun touches, Simba, is ours. You can choose any piece of land you want, and whatever you choose, I'll go somewhere else. So Lot chose a place near Sodom, and Abraham chose the other piece of land. So this is why verse 16 is significant, and we're continuing. Then, men up, then the men got up from their meal and looked out towards Sodom. As they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. Should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked. For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. He's showing that he's a promise-keeping God, and through Abraham and his family, they will bless the world. They will reverse the curse. And we're about to get dialed in on this place called Sodom and and a neighboring city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And just... uh, Warning, chapter 19 is explicitly violent and very sexual. So if you're not comfortable with hearing this, let me say this. This is, wor- this is God's word, and this is beneficial for us. But you don't have to sit through and, and listen to this. There is, there is some disturbing, there's this disturbing story in chapter 19. So I warned some parents, you know, my kid's sitting here, but she's sleeping, and she's eight months old and doesn't understand anything, so that's okay. But... Just, just know that this is, uh, this is what you get when you preach through the Bible. I don't get to preach about what I want, how you can serve me and my wants, and I just pick and choose verses to suit that. No, we're going through the whole Bible, and we're going to say what it says and put the emphasis on where it's putting emphasis. So here we go. We're going to Sodom. So... In verse 20, so the Lord told Abraham, I've heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because of 
their sin. Their sin is so flagrant, so blatant, so insane. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I've heard. If not, I want to know. The other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Destroying the righteous along with the wicked? Why, you wouldn't be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? So this is what's happening. Later that same day, two angels left for Sodom. The Lord stayed behind with Abraham because they've become friends, literal friends. Abraham received the title friend of God. You can read that in a book called James chapter 2 verse 23. You can read it in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 verse 7 and Isaiah 41 verse 8. Abraham is God's friend and God treated Abraham like a friend. So the two angels are going down to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham, I'm going to explain to you what's going on. Because I am your friend. And a friend is someone whom you open your heart to. And a friend is someone you understand and who understands you. And Abraham and God were friends. And he's telling Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham hears this and he's like, my nephew Lot is in Sodom. And so this is where this kind of this wager is going down. Abraham's saying, if, what, if you find, what if you find 50 good people in that city? Then you won't destroy it. And God says, okay, if I find 50. So Abraham's like, okay, wait, maybe not 50. It's kind of high, Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe, what if, what if you find 40 righteous people? What if you find 40 good people? Will you destroy it on account of that? No, I won't on account of 40. And he, and he dwindles down to 10. And God ends the conversation. Verse 33. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way and Abraham returned to his tent. Abraham was realizing, what if you find 50, 40, 30, 20, 10? He's realizing there, there are not many righteous there. In fact, there's only one as Lot and his family. So maybe five. There's only a few in Sodom. And so Abraham, what he's doing here, the, the Christian word is interceding. He's inter, he's an intercessor. He's interceding on behalf of another people. He's saying, God, I will, I, will, I will intercede for them. Please do not do this to them. And he's speaking to God. He's interceding. But the Lord finished the conversation. God was going to do what he's going to do. And Abraham knew it. The Lord finished his conversation with Abraham and he went on his way and Abraham returned to his tent. So chapter 18 is about God's relationship with Abraham and we're seeing Abraham's character Chapter 19 is contrasting Abraham's nephew with Abraham. And so now we're in Sodom and Gomorrah, the opening of 
chapter 19. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. Lot was sitting there. Lot is Abraham's nephew. He was sitting there. And so this is significant. It's not like when it says sitting there, it's not like you, you are sitting there. In other translations, it says the angels came to the entrance of the city and Lot was sitting there at the gate of the city. So if you're sitting at the gate of the city, you're a prominent person in that city. You're like a gatekeeper. Lot had become an increasingly influential person in Sodom. So, so he wasn't just like a random citizen in Sodom in its corruption and its sin and in its flagrant disloyalty to God. He had worked his way up and he was sitting as a gatekeeper for Sodom. He was increasing in corruption, Lot. So at first when he chose the land, a part of his heart Maybe all of his heart was saying, whoa, those things are shiny over there. I like what's going on over there. The land is good. I want to go there. And then he got there, and then the corruption started to get to him. And he was changing. This is similar to a story. It's in this book, Dangerous Calling. It's kind of like, it's not like confessions of a pastor, but similar, something like that. It's, it's pastors who are sharing their struggles of what it's like to be a pastor. It's in a book, and it's counseling how you can combat these things and how you can rise above these temptations and these, and these sins. So there's a story, and there's a pastor, and he, um, he, works at, he chooses to study and work on his sermons and check his emails at Starbucks. And so he's in a big Starbucks which within a, chap, like a chapter's bookstore, and he would sit there and he would do his work on his computer. But he would notice that there's this, this woman who would sit across this, this giant Starbucks at this table. And whenever he went there, she would always be there. And he would notice her and he thought at first, how beautiful. This girl is very attractive. This man is married. He doesn't know who this woman is, if she's married or anything. But day after day, week after week, month after month, the pastor who is sitting at this table would sit at tables getting closer to this woman until he was basically a table away and she had no idea what was going on. Actually, maybe. Women are pretty intuitive. But he was essentially stalking her until one day she left, got in her car, drove away. But this time he followed her. He's a pastor of a very big, vibrant church in the States. He followed her home. He saw where she went. He went up the stairs and was about to knock on the door and realized what had happened and the corruption, how the sin grew. And that's when he needed help. He stepped down from his pastoral role. He got counseling. This is what was happening to Lot. The sin of Sodom was corrupting him. He continues, And when he saw them, he saw these two angels at the entrance. He stood up to meet them. Then he welcomed them and bowed with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my home to wash your feet and be my guests for the night. You may then get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted. So at last they went home with him. 
Remember how I was saying this is a contrast between chapter 18, between Abraham and chapter 18? In chapter 18, Abraham lives in a tent. Verse 33, and he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. But in chapter 19, my lords, he said in verse 2, come to my home. Come to my home. And this is significant. He's laying down roots in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham knows that there's a heavenly place that's greater than this. And I'm not camping here. I'm not laying down roots here. This is not my home. I'm an ambassador of God. Abraham had, Abraham had a tent. Lot had a home. And so this isn't saying to us, Christians, you shouldn't have homes. You should live in tents. That's not what it's saying. But, it, but what this is trying to teach us, it's don't have your grip on the world so hard. You're setting roots in places you have no business setting roots in. Lot had a home in Sodom. He shouldn't have. He was becoming an important person. He already was an important person. He was a gatekeeper. You have Lot's home. You have Abraham's tent. In the book of Hebrews, it said Abraham was waiting for a heavenly city. And it showed in his lifestyle. He had a loose grip on his stuff. Does your stuff control you? Do you love your things more than you love God? Do you care about God? This is what it's talking about. This is what happens to Lot. So Lot, he prepared a feast for them complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. Verse 4, But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged, don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them as you wish, but please leave these men alone, for they are my guests and under my protection. So Lot, he's welcomed these angels into their house. Word around town is that there's some, angel, or there's some men in Lot's house. And it says, what does it say? Where are we at? How many people came? All of them. All, it says, verse 4. All of the men of Sodom, young and old. So all the men surround the house in verse 4. They shouted at Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. This is a wild, wild city. This is why God says, I'm going to judge it. All the men, young and old, showed up. And, and during this time, the way hospitality works is that if you have guests in your home, if you've invited guests over, that you are to protect your guests even if it means your death. So that's the culture that, that we're talking about right now. So that's why Lot makes the horrible, horrible wager or decision to say, look, in verse 8, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. He's saying, spare these two guests. Rather, take my daughters. You can see how the corruption has taken over. He's disregarding his family for the guests. You can't tell what's up and down anymore. Verse 9, stand back, 
they shouted. This fellow came to town as an outsider, and now he's acting like our judge. We'll treat you far worse than those other men. And they lunged toward Lot to break down the door. But the two angels reached out, pulled Lot into the house, and bolted the door. Then they blinded all the men, young and old, who were at the door of the house. So they gave up trying to get inside. The angels blinded the men that were groping at the door, trying to get in. I was reading this, or I was listening to this pastor talk about this passage. He's like, you ever watch that show, Touched by an Angel? He's like, this is what it's like to be punched by an angel. <laughs> so he, they blinded the men who were outside the door that were trying to come inside. Meanwhile, the, angel, the angels questioned Lot. Do you have any other relatives here in the city? They asked. Get them out of this place. Your sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else? For we are about to destroy the city completely. The outcry against this place is so great, it has reached the Lord, and he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot rushed out to tell his daughters, fiancés, Quick, get out of the city. The Lord is about to destroy it. But the young man thought he was only joking. At dawn, the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, get out right now, or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. When Lot still hesitated, the angel seized his hand and the hand of his wife and two daughters and rushed them to safety outside the city, for the Lord was merciful. When they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, Run for your lives, and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be, or you will be swept away. Oh no, my Lord, Lot begged. You have been so gracious to me and, and saved my life. You have shown such great kindness, but I cannot go to the mountains. Disaster would catch up to me there, and I would soon die. See, there's a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. All right, the angel said. I will grant you your request. I will not destroy the little village, but hurry, escape to it, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. This explains why the village was known as Zoar, which means little place. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. God has sent his justice and his judgment rightly on Sodom and Gomorrah and completely destroyed it, but saved Lot's family. Graciously. Despite Lot and his choices, he graciously <coughs> rescued Lot. And they destroyed the city. Or he destroyed the city. God did. He brought down fire. In verse 26, it said, Lot's wife looked back and as she was following behind him and she turned into a pillar of salt. So I don't know if you've ever seen any movies or depictions of this scene. It's kind of like Armageddon has happened. Comets are coming from the sky and the city is on fire and is an inferno and everything is burning up. They're screaming and Lot's running out with the angels with his daughters and fiancés and, and Lot's wife is there and she decides to turn around and like her eyes turn into salt and her ears and stuff like that. And her, we don't know what happens. We don't know if that's what went down. It didn't say when she turned into a pillar of salt. 
if, if it's raining sulfur and fire, you know, she could have been evaporated by the heat. Either way, don't let movies dictate what the Bible is saying. We don't know exactly how that all went down, but she turned into a pillar of salt. Verse 27, Abraham got up early in the morning, that morning, and hurried out to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain towards Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. But God had listened to Abraham's request and kept Lot safe, removing him from the disaster that engulfed the cities of the plain. God's justice towards Sodom and Gomorrah was fully, fully justified. What was this city like? We have another writer in the Bible. It's in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 to 50. It says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and the needy suffered outside the door. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out, as you have seen. So this isn't a typical story that you like to talk about. You know, you're not going to have bumper stickers about Lot's wife turning into pillars of salt. And we love, as Christians, and the world loves to hear, but God is love. We love to talk about God's love. But when it comes to his fury, which is an equal attribute of God, or his justice, or his wrath and his judgment, we don't talk about that. We'd rather talk about his love. And these are all attributes of God that must be spoken about. We can't choose one over the other. If God is love, then he hates certain things. He will hate things that go against his character. If you love life, you hate murder. If you love the truth, you will hate lies. Don't we demand justice when we hear in the news somebody murders this group of people or creates this heinous crime and they just get a $5,000 fine? We demand justice. Don't we do that? Then we must demand justice when it comes from God as well. We must demand justice from God. And if you've ever been caught in an act of something and justice is required, you're caught red-handed and you're before the judge or you're before a friend or you're before your workplace and you're caught red-handed and you're caught in the act and you were guilty, you do not say, give me justice. You say, give me mercy. Because I know what I've done. I know what I am. We don't plead for justice. We plead for mercy. And, Lot, and God chose to show his mercy towards Lot and his family. Not because they were perfect, not because they deserved it. And we'll learn as we close here that Lot's daughters are not perfect, nor is Lot. They have been corrupted by their life in Sodom and Gomorrah, and its wickedness had entered deep into the souls of Lot's daughters and in Lot. And this can happen to us. If we're not careful what we look at, if we're not careful what we listen to, who we hang around, that can corrupt our souls. And we become numb to the things that God hates. And this is what happens. 
Verse 30. Afterward, Lot left Zoar because he was afraid of the people there, and he went to live in a cave in the mountains with his two daughters. One day, the older daughter said to her sister, There are no men left anywhere in this entire area, so we can't get married like everyone else, and our father will soon be too old to have children. Come, let us get him drunk with wine, and then we will have sex with him. That way we will preserve our family line through our father. So that night they got him drunk with wine, and the older daughter went in and had intercourse with her father. He was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. The next morning the older daughter said to her younger sister, I had sex with our father last night. Let's get him drunk with wine again tonight, and you go in and have sex with him. That way we will preserve our family line through our father. So that night they got him drunk with wine again. And the younger daughter went in and had intercourse with him. As before, he was unaware of her lying down or getting up again. As a result, both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their own father. When the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab from my father. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Moabites. When the younger daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Benami, which means of my kinsmen. He became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Ammonites. The daughters thought this was a good idea. Our lineage is going to die. There's no men around, so we're just going to rape our dad. Lot's not a victim here either, lest we think that, because you cannot do that as an unconscious man. He might not have known and be, he said he was unaware. But he was not unconscious. And Sodom had corrupted them where they thought this was a good idea. Lot was drunk, but alcohol is never an excuse. Not then, not now. And the corruption is just continuing in these generations. And we see it. Chapter 18 and 19, we're seeing God's justice towards a rebellious world. Yet... Yet God is still fulfilling his unstoppable promise to Abraham. We read this story, we think this is awful. It's awful to read. It's awful to preach about. I'm at home last night. I'm like, Caitlin, this text. But I got to teach it because I can't just skip it because it's God's word. But this isn't the whole story. We still have the whole Bible left. And this is the gospel implication. This is the good news where we read this horrific story of Lot and his cowardliness in trying to give his daughters up for rape and his daughters raping him. It's just, it's just horrible. It's horrible. And it's not like this stuff doesn't happen today. But God says, I'm still going to fulfill my promise to Abraham. And this is the gospel invocation. Abraham, remember when he was praying on behalf of the wicked? He's saying, Lord, if, you, if there's 50, if there's 40, he's interceding for them. He's saying, God, if there's another way... Let's do that way. He's interceding for them. But the glorious and good thing of the gospel is that someone came and interceded for us on our behalf. In our rebellion, we are no different than Lot and his daughters. We're all in the same boat. We are all condemned. But Jesus shows up. God in the flesh 2,000 years ago. And And Paul, one of the writers of the Bible, writes in a book called Romans Chapter 8, verse 34. He says, Who then will condemn us? No one. 
For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, interceding for us. And he interceded to the point where he died for our sins. He paid for it. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. How amazing is that? That he took our rebellion, our crimes, and put it on himself. Jesus intercedes on our behalf, and it will not fail. If you place your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You are promised a place at God's table and a room in his home. You can rest. Christ intercedes on our behalf. He intercedes on behalf of the wicked. That's the first gospel gospel implication. The second one is this, and I'm closing with this. God's justice demands that he only punishes the guilty. He will only ever punish the guilty. The trouble, of course, and the trouble is this, and this is our biggest dilemma, is that we are all guilty before God. No one is innocent. None of us. Paul writes again in chapter 3 of Romans, verses 9 to 18. He says, Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than the others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. The talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. He's saying we're all guilty sinners, all of us. Yet Jesus Christ underwent the punishment that we deserved. He became guilt in our place. And because of his work on the cross, anyone who believes in him, anybody, I don't care where you've come from. And if you say to me, you don't know what I've done. God says, I know what you've done and I've already paid for that. Then we are declared righteous and we can be assured of God's mercy. Jesus was punished on our behalf. And therefore there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If this is your first time hearing this, the moment you place your faith in what Jesus Christ has done, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation. And you will never taste death. You will never see the fury of God. And it's a free and open gift to anybody. And if you are a believer, that is our hope, that Jesus Christ did it all. And we rest in what he's done. And that is the gospel. The justice of God was placed on the head of Jesus Christ so that we can be set free. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you've done in showing us mercy. God, help us to reflect your justice, to reflect your mercy, that we would be light and salt in this world to the glory of God and to the joy of your saints. Amen.